Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Bonnie Proudfoot. Bonnie is the author of two books, Goshen Road by Ohio University Press, which was longlisted for the 2021 Penn Hemingway Award, and winner of the 2022 Writers' Conference of Northern Appalachia Book of the Year, and her recent poetry collection, Household Gods by Sheila Nagig. She was the recipient of the West Virginian Department of Culture and History Award in 1994, and she has lived in the Appalachian region since 1979, teaching at Hawking College and serving as an active member of the Southeastern Ohio Poetry Community. Bonnie is, all, is also an artisan stained glass artist who for 16 years ran the studio Art Glass of West Virginia, a studio that specialized in innovative custom designed windows and lampshades. Her writing has appeared in numerous literary magazines and anthologies. And Bonnie, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. It's so wonderful to be here. And I so enjoy the Ohio Poetry OPA Spotlight. It's, it's such a wonderful podcast. So I'm honored. Thank you so much. And and don't tell anyone, but I'm a fan of it too. It's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so could you uh, please start us with a poem? I could. Um, I'm going to read a poem from Household Gods uh, to kind of introduce uh, the book a little bit. Um, the book is sort of chronological. It uh, follows, it's a coming of age story. And uh, so this one takes place, I would say, during the early 1960s, and it's um, a prominent feature in this book is recollections of family life and my grandmother, whose many friends survived the Holocaust in Queens, New York. So um, I'm kind of an, uh, an ex-New Yorker come to Appalachia, and uh, the term I think they call incomer, and, but this book takes place mostly is set in Queens. And uh, so this is called How Many Pages of Photographs? How many pages of photographs do I have to flip through to get to the one I remember her by? That one, the picture with the roses sitting for once in her endless day of endless housework. That one, her hair black as a raven, streaked with thin streamers of silver, pointy black glasses with dots of rhinestones that looked like they were meant for someone who went to the beauty parlor. And I did follow her there sometimes, waiting, trying not to stare at ladies whose blue curls were rolled and pinned in graceful swirls, whose pink smocks hung loosely over pearl necklaces, whose arms bore blue numbers that could never be washed clean. They smoked and rasped out, darling, when they needed the settings adjusted on the hair dryers. And there was Life magazine, photos of Jackie, baby Caroline, and JFK. And who knew that soon he too would be taken, the sorrow flowing like his death made six million plus one killed, even though he was not Jewish. But somehow his body too lay on those piles to be wept over. Then came Martin Luther King, and we all know where this is headed. Tamir Rice's mother knows where. George Floyd's brother knows. How does a numbered lady forgive? How does the world recover from a river of tears that turns into an ocean? Forgiveness knocks like a beggar. We have so much grief to offer, but it will not find its way in. Once my grandmother held out her arm and I marveled at each soft wrinkle and fold, each pink or brown mall, but now the river of tears holds all the ashes. Not another one gone. Brianna Taylor, not again. Yeah, it's, man. I, Tamir Rice wasn't too far away from here, being Cleveland. Um, but it's, oh God, it's really transformed. Anyway, sorry, Na national zeitgeist aside. What is your earliest memory of poetry? Oh, what a wonderful question. Um, so this is a silly answer, but probably Jabberwocky. Um, my dad loved that poem and read it. Twas Brilligan, the Slide V Toasted, Guyer and Gimble in the Wave. And like my brother loved A.A. Um, a. Milne and Winnie the Pooh. But I didn't so much love that as I liked 
kind of nonsense syllables of Jabberwocky. I just thought it was so wonderful. I kind of tried to imagine what it was about all the time, but I would just love the sort of way that it made your tongue trip all over your mouth. And uh, so I think the sound of it, but also if I have to be really serious, um, you know, being a, a raised Jewish and going to temple and a lot of uh, the Psalms and uh, Hebrew prayers were kind of poetic. So, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, that kind of thing. Interesting. So, so would you say like, did you hear that stuff and be like, oh, this is a poetic thing? Or did you hear poetry and be like, oh, this is like church? <laughs> is it yeah, like- right. Yeah, exactly. I think I heard poetry and then thought there's something spiritual about it, about the fact of organizing language so that it sounds half like a prayer and half like a song and half like a deeper thinking that someone's doing. You know, and then, of course, in high school, we had to memorize some poems and but they weren't anything like that. You know, the kinds of poems we had to memorize were I must go down to the sea again, the lonely sea in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been kind of critical about that because like high school, I'd be like, well, this this poet's been dead for 250 years. Here's this thing that I'm telling you is relevant to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I know. It can be tough. <laughs> So when did you- Although we did get, you know, I mean, we got, a, uh, I had some radical teachers and um, uh, towards the end of high school, we got into a little bit of beat poetry, which was kind of amazing enough. And, you know, Whitman to Ginsburg kind of thing. So um, a, I think that probably was AP English. Okay. Is that when you started writing it? No, I I think I wrote fiction first. I wrote, I wrote stories. I, poetry was just so scary to write i didn't have any clue what i was doing i was scared of poetry yeah i think that's fair a lot of a lot of writers are and, and i think a lot of writers they they approach writing with either like i'm going to write a screenplay or i'm going to write a book you know they don't start out with poetry or playwriting or you know that kind of stuff they get pulled into it i wrote i wrote stories in high school i know i did yeah. Well, your first book, which I'm going to ask you many questions about, <laughs> Goshen Road, that, that's that's a fiction novel. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And it started as just stories and then eventually turned into a whole novel. Well, where, 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 what point in your life did the poetry come in where you're like, yes, I understand this medium. I'm going to do this. <laughs> so this is um, I went to college at SUNY Buffalo, and um, although I didn't finish there, then I came back and finished in Fairmont, West Virginia. But um, we, uh, there were poets that I, I, I took a couple of poetry classes, and there were poets I was terrified of. Uh, Robert Creeley was there when I was there, and really? did I take a class from him? No, I could have. I, you know, I was an English major, English and anthropology, and I certainly could have taken it class from Robert Creeley. And don't ask me why I didn't. I, I saw him read, you know, and uh, Gary Snyder, Gregory Corso, a bunch of wonderful people. Um, Ginsburg came with Peter Arlovsky to the student union. So at that point, uh, you know, I was like madly in love with poetry, but still not. I mean, you know, honestly, you know, who would, who, what women, you know, you would maybe heard of. Um, Emily Dickinson and Elizabeth Barrett Browning and, you know, not even Elizabeth Bishop really that much until way later. So um, it, I almost felt like it wasn't till later, Diane de Prima, you know, and some of the uh, most wonderful, you know, feminist poets that you finally connect to when you realize, oh, women are writing, Sharon Olds and people like that, you know. But at first, it was all sort of like kind of male, really. Yeah. And intimidating. Well, until until I was born, um, not <laughs> date myself too much for the people listening to this, like, oh, that child. But I was, I was born in 1986. And I remember seeing the statistic that up until 1986, there were only five women who were named the Poet Laureate. The, Ever, the fir- yeah. The yeah, first wow. one was uh, Louise Bogan. And mm-hmm. Gwendolyn Brooks, when I was born in 1986, she had. Wow. How fantastic. Operating Poet Laureate. But, you know, you're right. Like it's it's the English canon has always been kind of. In terms right. of things outside of the white male experience. It wasn't until after I left Buffalo that I realized Louise Clifton was from Buffalo. 
<laughs> but she already would have been, I think, in Baltimore by that time. I'm not sure. But I was like, wow, Louise Clifton grew up here in Buffalo. Yeah. I mean, in Robert Creeley, holy crap, that guy's, I mean, he's he's a major New York, right? He was one of the Black Mountain poets. He was one yeah, of the right. guys. The Charles Olson. And, yeah. 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 So right. what was he like when he read? I'm sorry. I'm just like um, fan gushing now. I'm not. I should be asking a question. I'm yeah, sorry. it's sort of like the voodoo lounge kind of. Um, you know, imagine like, um, you know, the mood. He wore black. You know, he looked like a, a giant crow kind of. Thing. He wore a cape. <laughs> <laughs> a cape. He did. He wore a cape, and sometimes he wore a cape, and uh, he had black and black glasses and all. And it was poets wore black back then. Jeremy, I'm sorry, so they don't do that anymore so much. No, they still do. They wore lots of. <laughs> I'm worried that I don't have fashion sense. So like, wait a second, hold on. So did he wear a cape to classes or is it? No, I didn't take classes. I was too scared. I didn't. I took fixing classes. So I was writing fixing and I, I was, I wanted to, I mean, you know, I, my classes were like intro to literature, the Norton anthology of literature, lots of Shakespeare yeah. and uh, cre my creative writing uh, that I took was fixing because okay. I had already written stories in high school. So I felt more, at least I think I could do that. Yeah. 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 It yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. Was it, was it that you felt like you were like missing something? And, and the reason I ask, I think this is actually really useful information for, for, because a lot of people get intimidated by poetry. A lot of people have this attitude. It's not, it's not their attitude. It's the, it's poetry. It's the poetry community's attitude that this is a difficult ivory tower discipline right? That like you have to know these special things or you have to be in tune with your muse meditatively to-, to Right, right. Write. And it, there's a certain power too, you know? And then, like I said, I saw Ginsburg and um, Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones, right? And he was fantastic. He was in Buffalo. And so a lot of poets came to Buffalo uh, through um, SUNY Buffalo. And, uh, and so there was a poetry scene and I, I loved it from, from the start. I love the performance aspect of it. I love the language aspect of it. I loved the way it made me think about um, ideas that I would never have connect. Two different ideas would be connected in a way I never would have been able to connect it. You know, my, I think if there's a lesson, the lesson is uh, don't be so scared. If you love it, just, try, just jump into that lake and start to swim. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> so what was the moment for you then where you're like, I can do this. And like the, the, the first poem you wrote, not, not like the first, because the first poem you wrote was probably like seventh grade or whatever. You're just like typing stuff out, writing stuff out. But what was the first time you're like, nah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a serious poet. So I dropped out of school for a while and then went back to college and um, decided once I lived in West Virginia, that I wanted to take um, art ed and English ed. I felt like there was two aspects of my life that um, I could really develop um, and uh, and that I knew I kind of needed guidance for in both cases, that I didn't want to be self-taught. Um, and so it's just so wonderful because I went to I went from SUNY Buffalo, which probably had whatever, 60,000 students or something like that to a tiny little college in Fairmont called Fairmont State College, which, you know, had maybe like 5,000 students, which was the size of my high school. And uh, and in, in that situation, um, I felt way more comfortable not knowing what I was doing. And I began taking uh, creative writing classes and it was part of my uh, English ed degree. And so, and then got, you know, did everything that students do got involved in a literary magazine and was, uh, you know, I, I realized I was a good reader, you know, and um, as from, it went kind of like the connection was reading and knowing what I liked by reading to then trying to write. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that makes sense. And I love Fairmont State College where I went. It's not a college anymore. It's a university. It's not any bigger, but it's a university. And they published a literary magazine called Kestrel. And that actually was the first place that published two of the stories that later turned into like the core of the novel that I. So um, 
they have, and it's the 30 year anniversary of their literary magazine. I'm pretty happy to say, but the one that I was involved in was the student magazine. It was Whetstone, not Kestrel, but that that's still going strong too. It's kind of wonderful. <laughs> so college, I think college was a great, um, you know, uh, maybe, maybe I was just slow at figuring out that this was something I wanted to do uh, or, you know, or, or I felt like I had to be good at it right away. And so it held, I held myself back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's deep, right? But <laughs> no, it, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great journey. I think it's, it's, I think that it's very, I think there's a lot of people who want to write poetry, who are intimidated by it, or they feel like they went to school for something else, or they just, they just don't, you know, what, what they don't have what it takes. And I think it's really important to hear stories like yours, where people are like, yeah, I came to it late in life, or I was down other streets before I found this one, you know, it's. And, you know, community, I mean, honestly, this two things I can say about that, um, First of all, if you're in a community of learners, it's fantastic because people will read your work. People will suggest ideas for things to write about. People will want you to read their work. And then you have to watch out how to say what you're thinking when you read it. But also it makes you uh, wider open. It gives your palate. Um, it broadens your palate. Like you have a wider range of possibilities. The more poetry that you read and the more you encounter and um, and they'll tell you what they're reading, and then you'll read that too, and it helps you connect to um, journals and other uh, poets that you might not have found otherwise. And um, it so it I think I mean for me one of the most I'm not completely uh, an island. I I think I wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't like stumbled into some pretty wonderful communities of poets. And and fiction writers. Yeah. And I actually wanted to ask you, since since we're on the subject, I wanted to ask you about this because you have been doing glass for like 45 years, like, 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 a, like a long time. And so you were a part of another creative community, another community of people that have support for one another. And I'm not asking for like a compare and contrast, but I'm wondering, how do you feel about the poetry community? How do you feel about Ohio's community? Do you think um, from that outsider's perspective, do you think that what are its strengths and weaknesses? Like, you know, just just I think that sometimes a community can be diagnosed, not that there's something wrong with it, but like, you know what I mean? Like that there, there could be sometimes perspective is nice, I guess. So when I first started writing, I lived in West Virginia, and I immediately, this isn't about Ohio at all, Jeremy, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a long time answering your question, I'm afraid, but uh, I joined (laughs) West Virginia Writers, and West Virginia Writers was started by these wonderful folks, and it was already ongoing by the time I started writing, so they must, I think they pretty much founded West Virginia Writers in the late 1970s, and I joined in the 1980s, and that was the first community for me. And they're a fantastic group of people, and they still have writers' conferences, and they um, have a fall conference and a summer conference, and the summer conferences at Cedar Lakes, people share their work, they have open mics, they have workshops, and they also have a competition every year, and um, one of the first times any of my work won anything was I was like an honorable mention and uh, you know you really like screw up your nerve to like submit something and then oh my god I won an honorable mention for one of my stories when I went down to the conference to get my award and where I met people I was initially terrified of but they turned out to be really nice wonderful people and even some of whom I've stayed in touch with over these years like people from Parkersburg West Virginia and um Bit by bit by bit, uh, I began writing more and more. And so I already had established a sense of community. And when I came here to Athens and also to Hawken College to teach, I came here to work on a PhD in creative writing, but I didn't finish it. I had already, I had two master's degrees by then and um, I was tired of being broke. I got a job at Hawken College and uh, also I had two sons. So I... I got hired at Hawken College and there were 
six poets on the faculty who turned out to be fantastic people and also my peers and colleagues. And we began throwing poems under each other's doors and even chunks of stories under each other's doors. You know, we were sitting in our office hours, no students would come to see us. We kind of caught up on the grading, we'd be eating lunch. And it, oh, it's Tuesday, let's pop a poem. I've had this ongoing poetry thing with my buddies from Hawking. Most of them are retired now. And, uh, but still we do this. And uh, a happy thing is we're all gonna read at the Logan Public Library on April 1st, I think it is. So um, there's going to be a group reading and we're going to call it Under the Office Door because that's what happened with all our poems um, for all these many years. And we still send each other work. So the first thing that happened when I got, I mean, I barely knew anybody when I came to Athens and then I did go to grad school. So I got to know some folks. And then I got, I left grad school and went to teach full-time and um, met a bunch of wonderful poets right away. And I'd say here in Ohio, like I've now connected to the OPA, which I really enjoy. I love the open mics. I love hearing the different voices. I love how people um, feel comfortable with each other, comfortable enough to share new work or um, test things out and everybody's taking the same risk. It really is. Even if it's a zoom, you know, we're all out there. The blank page is terrifying. I don't care how many years you've been writing. The blank page is terrifying and we're all taking the same risks, but um, now it's gotten easier for me. And I think I owe a lot to community and also um, COVID. Can I say I owe a lot to COVID? It's ridiculous to say that, but um, what happened with COVID was, my novel had just come out. I had uh, just retired from full-time teaching, even though I was still part-time teaching. And I um, then COVID happened. And I happened to be on an open mic. And it was uh, it was called the Thursday Night Open Mic, supported, sponsored by uh, Carrie Gunther Seymour and Stephanie Kendrick, two Athens poets. And um, I put into the chat, does anybody have any poetry workshops coming up? Because I thought, my novel's out. What am I going to do? Maybe I'll take a poetry workshop, and that way I'll get inspired to write about things. And Pauletta Hansel was on the um, open mic and and that night, and she popped into the chat. I have one that's going to start. And it was like two weeks after the shutdown, and um, suddenly I was in a whole new poetry community of wonderful people from Cincinnati. And it, um, I've said this many times, but it felt like, I moved into a neighborhood and all the neighbors opened their doors and invited me in because suddenly I had a new sort of poetry pals. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so Ohio, I mean, Ohio, maybe because of Zoom, maybe because of COVID, maybe because I just got super lucky with the connections I've made, but I found it, it's like very fertile and very nurturing. Plus, I mean, who could have a, I mean, Pauletta was just, I just can't believe my good fortune at stumbling into workshops with Pauletta. But also Carrie Gunter Seymour um, was offering free workshops at the time and just, or I don't know if they made it free or maybe like $20 or something. Zoom had, you know, taken over. And so she had some regular gigs where she was teaching workshops and everything was like um, challenging, but also you had time to think. Everything had slowed down, so you had time to think. I wouldn't have probably written this book if not for COVID, my poetry book, because I everything had slowed down enough. You know, I wasn't running down the road teaching in person anymore, and I, I was able to like think about what I was thinking about and write. Yeah, yeah. No, I. That's a really long answer. I'm sorry. No, don't apologize. I think it's I think it's a fantastic answer. And there's a lot that I'm relating to. So I can only imagine people listening to it. Because I'm thinking like, oh man, the podcast is only because of COVID. You know, like this, what we're doing right now would have never right. happened without right, it. Right, and right. I also feel like the doors are all open and I don't have to like lock my car in the poetry community. You know what I mean? Like right. <laughs> everybody's nice. Right. Um I want to I want to talk a, a, a bit about your work and your style and, and your writing process because um, you you have two things I think I think you're 
I love your writing. I, I liked, I like Goshen. I think Goshen Road is, is amazing. If people are interested in fiction books, please go check it out. Um, but you, one thing that you do both in your fiction and your poetry is that two things. One, in, I'm going to start with one. You're excellent at at being writing about place. You're 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 a place writer, and you know. I think that people read your work, feel seen by it. Those who don't know what it's like to live in a rural area, they get a sense of what things are like. Um, and I personally have never seen a foil wrapped potatoes and hand prepared meats like <laughs> mussels and clams and pork like jammed into a campfire outside of either my rural community or when I went down to West Virginia to meet my family and like those types of sim those sim those images that you put in your your poetry are so very specifically rural <laughs> I don't want to say they're Appalachian because they're they're Appalachian but they're rural they're rural images um so I, I'm going to ask you, how does place fit into your work? How do you feel molded by place? Because even when I asked you about Ohio, you started with West Virginia. So I imagine that I, place I, is strong in with you. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I lived for quite some time in West Virginia. And um, I, was a, I, I was a city girl, really, who, um, I, you know, I went to college in Buffalo for a while and then moved down. My ex-husband's family was from West Virginia. They... they they came to West Virginia in the 1700s, so they were established in West Virginia, and um, we moved to a pretty rural spot, and it was uh, eye-opening for me, honestly, because um, I, I was I had to like open wide to see who everyone was and not bring... I didn't want to bring any preconceived notions to it. I didn't want to bring any... Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to prejudge people. I wanted to make the, allow people to be who they were and for me to understand them on their own terms, you know, and, um, but one of the reasons that I loved moving to West Virginia was the place that I moved to. It was gorgeous. Right. And although it, there's like, like William Butler Yeats, kind of that terrible, terrible beauty thing that happens because it's a beauty, but it also, the land's been exploited and the rivers are not clean anymore. And um, lots of places where uh, were timbered and then soil erosion happened. And um, uh, there was just a horrible poverty because houses were built for like logging camps or maybe gas, gas mining, gas wells. And the gas wells were all sort of like a temporary thing. And then people just stayed there. It was like a kind of a wildcatting thing that happened in Wessel County, West Virginia. And um, so you see all this beauty and you see these folks who really understand how to live in the woods, live, you know, with what nature provides. That's a remark. I had a remarkable experience. So I, I think part of it was a, one of the motivations for writing the novel was, um, and that's why the Goshen Road is sort of like place is so central to that novel because um one of the motivations was to uh to meet the place on its own terms and uh not try to approach it as an outsider if i would have like written a sociology book you know uh, here's this girl from new york coming to west virginia i would have written it as if i was an outsider but <laughs> i don't know if i'm getting but i didn't want to write that book mm -hmm. i wanted to write it from like uh through the people that I sort of encountered with empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it took me a really long time to write the book because I struggled with tone and making it feel honest, hoping that um, the neighbors and people that I met and stayed friends with would not look at this book as a betrayal. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So that was, so I had to be true to the place in order to really establish a sense of accuracy, right? And I also love books that take you somewhere. I love books that plop you into a place that you've never been. I don't care if it's a science fiction book and I'm reading, you know, some kind of quest or it's a movie like Star Wars or whatever, or if it's if it's a beautiful book that's well-written, it is, it's managed to make me believe that, I mean, I'm, I'm reading Moby Dick and I'm on that ship. 
with Herman Melville. I don't, uh, that's one of the things I love about it. Now that's a staging ground for a lot of deeper thinking, of course, but if he hadn't been able, he wouldn't have kept me as a reader, Melville, going back to Melville, he wouldn't have kept me as a reader if he hadn't said all that cool whale stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Like you, you're not gonna, the symbolism doesn't matter if you're not right down right. with the imagery that sets up the symbolism. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And uh, and now I found out what it's like to, and I still love that book, but other books too. I mean, some of the the novels that I really love um, are, you know, like I love um, Sometimes a Great Notion and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and um, it, uh, another roadside attraction and novels that are, take you someplace that, and then suddenly you're in a place and then you want to see what people are like in that place. So it's attractive. I love Love Medicine by Louise Urgic and, um, and seeing what uh, the people are like in Minnesota where she lives. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think, I think your you know, I think your your desire to take people and put them in a spot is it, it, it it's I mean there, there's a reason I crafted this question. That you have a you have a poem about mimosas, which right. if anybody else was writing it, especially somebody that didn't, you know, I think if I read a poem about mimosas from somebody who lived in New York City, <laughs> it'd be about brunch. You know what I mean? But yours <laughs> In the <laughs> it's not about brunch you actually compare that poem multiple times in the poem you go back and you describe what it's like to have a tree you're like oh mimosa if only i had a tree and then at another <laughs> point in the poem you said you wrote something like oh man it's like um uh before I ever could drink or something or before i had a mimosa but also before i had a tree like those are the two <laughs> the two things that define adulthood for you um, I don't think you could really get that out of somebody from New York. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Right. Having having gone to school in New York, would you agree with that statement? <laughs> Maybe it's because I have multiple audiences in my head. It's because I have my uh, one audience are like is my brother, right, and um, uh, my mom's baby sister who's still alive, and people who are. Um, you know, there are people who grew up with me and knew me in New York, and I need to show them what that other world is like. But also, I have the audience of people in Appalachian, Ohio. So maybe I carry these multiple audiences. And so that somehow or another informs what gets written in a way. That's an interesting, that's such a great question that um, I, I wonder if some of the things that you do wind up writing is because of your own imagined audiences that you may not even be conscious of. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's the ideal reader, right? Like you write for not necessarily a generalized audience, but someone. Yeah. It, the ideal re reader is a self-insert. It's like, I would like to read this stuff. So I'm going to write it for me, knowing there are other people like me who will approach it but I, I think it's more than that because you don't just write about place and you don't have like i think what you're saying is all obviously correct i'm not <laughs> i'm not gonna no, no. i'm not gonna pretend and be like no bonnie you don't but there's i think there's another part of it and it's you i think you are it's not just the places you've been but who you are as a person because you put yourself into your work like seriously like ser um it, it it's so deeply humanizing so you have the poem superpowers and you say you have this you have this kind of offhanded comment where you're like yeah i'm in my 60s and then in and then in uh par parentheticals you go for crying out loud like you could <laughs> you can't even believe it but then it contrasts really nicely against the things that you're there to discuss as the speaker. Like in for Christopher Robin, you're talking about like these old photographs and you're talking about what those symbols mean to you. And you're coming at it from a, from someone who's been around the block, who's wise, you know, your, your wisdom comes through the poems themselves. So I was actually hoping you might talk a little bit about your own role in it because i do think that you are representing these different experiences in your life but there's a part of you that you're talking about directly that's separate from place if that hopefully that wasn't too rambly <laughs> no uh thanks yeah uh what can i say or uh, so 
I, if I had to say who, what kind of poetic inspirations I have in a way, um, and I can never begin to even compare myself to Pauletta Hansel, but I was reading uh, uh, Pauletta, Pauletta's work, and she has some really wonderful books, Coal Town Photograph, which is sort of a coming of age, and also a little bit about her mom, but um, oh, quite a bit about her younger self, and her new book, Heartbreak Tree, it kind of gets into that also. Mm. Um, she does that really well. And maybe could we say it rubbed off? I don't know. Um, uh, it's a, a sense of, um, th- there's an organic in sort of identity that you embody because you were raised in a certain place, but you've moved somewhere else. So you have a lever to like that little d- way, d- that distancing mechanism, you know, um, you don't ever leave your background completely and it doesn't completely leave you, but you've maybe lived out in a world where you have um, a, a different sensibility. So you're not entirely naive anymore, of, you know, or just, you know, yes, I was a Mets fan when I was little and my dad was a Yankee fan. And that was like a thing that we argued about all the time, but I'm, I'm not the same exact Met fan. <laughs> but I can kind of go back into that mindset and at times and uh, and see how it played out from a different vantage point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So you care, but I think you carry, you carry those identities. You carry a certain sense of place or you carry like, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, when I looked out of my window as a kid, I saw a fire escape. I saw a bowling alley. I saw, you know, I, I, in order to get like the sky, I had to go up to the rooftop just about, you know, and true, there was like one tree. <laughs> well, no, we had a park that had trees. Sure. sure. <laughs> like trees weren't non-existent, just not. They, yeah, they were like actually more special because like, oh my God, you know, there's a tree <laughs> and you can play hide and seek behind it, you know? <laughs> I moved on to Maple Crest Avenue and there were no maples here. So I planted a oh, red maple I in my know. front yard. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I know, I know. Trees do that, right? So no, honestly, I think it's because you can keep two dual identities. And I saw that so well in Pauletta Hansel's work, I think. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And and I know she is she is responsible for cultivating a significant portion of not just writers from Ohio, but writers from all the way down Appalachia. Like I met somebody from like North Carolina that knew Pauletta. She's like, Oh yeah, I've been to multiple workshops. She's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> anyway. And, yeah. Uh, and she's a master of craft as well. I have to say. So um, she, she, if, if you read it, I do read her work carefully. You, you can kind of sense the pacing and the stepping back and the moving forward and where it, where it happens. And I think that I, I, I probably was influenced. I'd have to say, even though I'm way talkier than her in my poem. <laughs> I think Pauletta is so good. And I don't want to, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to veer our conversation off course, but she is so amazing at describing the human experience because, and, and I want to say like her poetry does that, but she literally does it with everything. It's not, just her poetry it's the articles she writes when she's talking to you she's so good and that's why she's i love watching her like do workshops and stuff because when she's doing a workshop she really knows how to translate that communication and she uses her own work you know she's doing the same work that she's asking her students to do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um now you have i want to i want to talk about the glasswork briefly because I'm I'm so fascinated by it. I think it's so cool. So you 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 spent you ran a studio for 16 years. You've been doing glass work since the 70s. You have it, it, an intricate understanding of the process from you know meltdown all the way to solidification. And I'm curious about why art is in glass, but also what are the parallels between glass work and poetry that you've noticed? Whether it's I tried to draw up like some comparisons, like, oh, the, when the glass is forming, it's like the editing process, but it's all silly. So I just, <laughs> I'd prefer hearing it in your own words. 
That's a, that is such a tough question to ask because I think I am a little bit, um, I love process. You know, I love craft, honestly. I look at craft all the time. I look at, I look not craft in terms of the product of the hand, but craft in terms of the ideas of the maker as it plays out into the final. And I'm very attracted in an abstract level to um, uh, craftsmanship in poetry and in glass. And, and I want to learn when I started doing glass, I realized, I never realized how vast it was and how much you could really learn. There's still things I want to learn about glass. I'm not a glass blower. Um, I'm, I'm hell with a cutter and, a cutting tool I can cut pieces really well and I can you know solder and make things at but um I think what I think I was drawn to uh the fact that it uh can have an identity in it in its own right as a as a, a piece of art that it can that it can say something and that um uh, a brand new combination of things can be said and I, I I think I look at pieces of glass a little bit like words, you know, um, uh, that your own, you can express your own identity and um, whatever glass can express, it expresses it. Although you can put words into your glass, but like quilts, you can put words into quilts, you can write, you know, um, and uh, I love the um, the challenge of it. I think the fact that if, if you have um uh this sort of image you can get closer and closer you don't always actually get what you want which is kind of a wonderful thing and it's the same thing with writing um with glass there's no turning back quite as much writing you can just erase the heck out of it revise you know look at something a year later but glass you have to be thinking about what you're doing next um, when, when i took poetry at um Ohio University, Wayne Dodd said, you're working on this poem, but you're really thinking about the next poem. And with glass, the same exact thing. You're working on this piece, but that piece is a springboard for the next piece. And um, so it's a little bit grueling and excruciating then when it lives out in the world and you're already thinking about the next thing, like, because then you start thinking, oh God, I would have done it differently. So it can be daunting, but um, (laughs) it's still kind of a it's still kind of a way to, it tells you where you are at that moment with regard to all the processes, you know, the thinking that you can do, the knowledge plus the intention. It tells you who you are, I guess, in a way, if I have to say something, I don't know. Maybe I'll revise that sometime. No, it's okay. I think, I think that is a tough question because, you know, I'm always interested when somebody does poetry and something else. So I always ask questions like this and you know, I, I think it might be a little more difficult to compare glass blowing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not a glass blower. I'm I'm mel- more of a right. melter. Yeah, so I, I have a kiln. Yeah, yeah. Glass blowing is pretty amazing too, but I don't do that. I'm terrible at that. What's the difference? What's the difference between glass blowing and, and okay? So, um, yeah, glass blowing. You need a a, for, a furnace that really melts like everything from sand and crush up glass and call it and all that stuff in, like imagine a giant oven and the oven goes to about 2500 degrees or 2400 degrees and you put all the raw ingredients plus color into it co- cobalt or selenium or the colors you can, the, the minerals and then you get a big glob of goo and you can either roll it out with the rollers and turn it into sheets like stained glass or you can blow it you know gather it at the end of a rod and blow it all that stuff i i don't do I don't, I, but, but once somebody has turned it into a sheet, I can cut it up and combine it and melt it to other sheets of glass and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I will do my best to ask. I, the right questions. You know, and I don't know what's the best thing to say about that, except for uh, now that I, I have lived a certain amount of time doing it. I can't conceive of not doing it anymore uh, as a part of myself. And there are, I can say this, when I'm in my studio, I listen to the Ohio Poetry Spotlight um, <laughs> and other it. podcasts. And the poetry, I, you know, like um, Poetry Unbound or, um, you know, some of the wonderful podcasts that talk about poetry, 
or I listen to um, uh, verses or some, you know, any, I love listening to poets read their work. I'll get, if, if Ada Limon is reading, you know, The Hurting Kind on a, a CD, I'm listening to it while I'm in my studio, making glass with my hands, but my brain gets a chance to like dive deep into what Ada Lamont is reading. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then let me, let me try one, one other one, a second time. <laughs> I'll come at it from other direction. How do you think your writing might've been different if you had never gotten into glass blowing? Oh, wow. Um, uh, that's a, you know, that's another, that's the other thing. If I'm not listening to anything, I am playing mentally with what I'm writing, right? So you need that alpha place. You know, I used to have a long commute from Fairmont to Morgantown when I was going to WVU. And when I was driving, I would think of where my characters were going to go. Or if I was going to teach, I'd plan my lessons or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. For a while in my life, I was a runner, and I could do that. You know, I went to Hollins down in Roanoke and I could run in the Blue Ridge. And I could, I wrote, I wrote poems and stories when I was down there because I had the mental um, distance and was in, I think it's like an alpha state or one of those wonderful like mental states that people have talked about. And so now I think when my hands are doing something and people like Tilly Olson, I stand here ironing. When you're that engaged with your hands, and you kind of know where they're going, that then your brain travels. And um, I do talk to my phone and um, I, I go, I think I can, I get more inspired because I have just distanced myself from the rest of the world in my studio. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. It's like you, you, it, the process would be the same, regardless of how the writing turns out different as you are that is who you are as a person. That's cool. Right, right. Well, it does. It is sort of like um, you step back, you know, you, I mean, you step back from the world and that stepping back puts you. And then when you if I listen to poets reading their poetry or people talking about poems or something, um, it can just very much remind you of something that you wanted to work on. You know, you you have that quiet time to think. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no, and I love running and I like biking. And so it, it, because I kind of do a similar thing where I'll take a poem and I'll put it into like my proverbial drawer and I'll not look at it for months. I'll look at it like six months later until I've forgotten what I was trying to do the original, like the first time. Right. So that gives me not the broad perspective you're describing, but different eyes. You know, I can kind of look at it from a different, um, but there's nothing like running 10 miles and coming back and you're, you've got the runner's high and like everything's sort of, um, it, you know, earlier that day feels like yesterday because you've been running for so long. Like, like the, the cardio yeah. really gets into your head. Uh, I think I wrote my novel mostly running and in coffee shops also. Beautiful. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I did. I don't run as I walk now. I walk my dog, but I don't run as much, and I I miss it. I I do. Yeah. All right. Well, would you like to send us home with a poem? Sure, I would love to send you home with a poem. I I I so enjoyed talking to you, Jeremy. It's wonderful. So um, I'll read another poem from this book of mine. Do you want me to read one of the poems you mentioned? Sure, it's up to you. I, I, <laughs> I, I'll read. I'll read Mimosa because, and this goes out to my friend Wendy McVicker, who was a longtime poet of poet laureate of Athens, Ohio. Um, we are on a poetry show together. It's live from Studio B. It's W O U B A M, and um, we record every Friday. And she said, "Let's all do poems about trees," and she said that, and. I sat down and wrote this poem almost in one fell swoop um, because I thought no one ever wrote a poem about a mimosa that I know of, you know, <laughs> lots of people have written poems about a lot of trees, but mimosa is just a funny word anyway. And um, uh, so yeah, mimosa. 
Um, wind blows down the avenues. Summer in Queens. Everyone's windows open and you can catch the Yankee game from every taxi or idling car at a traffic light. Truck exhaust mixing with asphalt, diesel from buses. The smell says pizza from noon to midnight. But for some reason, in front of my building, something a little rank, like soaked gym socks, the spent flowers from a mimosa, which inconveniently stick onto every parked car's hood, mansard roof, or windshield wipers. Leggy tree straining toward the sun between buildings in a small square of dirt cut out of the concrete sidewalk, marked by dogs, backed into by inept parkers, scrawny limbs, and naked barkless branches. Back in July, festooned by pink and white flowers like little ruffled parasols in a cocktail, it was as out of place as a movie set prop, a neon beach umbrella without a beach in sight. Oh, Mimosa, if I am, if ever I am so lucky to have a tree, I used to think way before I ever had a tree or drank a mimosa, I would never have one as skanky as a slit thigh prom dress, promising way too much with touch me not leaves that clamp together when brushed or padded. Not me. In those days, everything was already impossibly clamped to everything else. I had no idea who I wanted to be, but I know what it felt like moment by moment to be surrounded by everything galling. Maybe some other girl looked out the, over the fire escape while waiting for a GTO to double park with its flashers on, radio blasting, can't take my eyes off of you. Maybe someone, say my mom, on a beautification committee would plant a mimosa and hope the block for one month in summer would look like a fairy tale. But now it's almost September. School's back in session. The pennant race is heating up. Across the street, Luigi is dripping sweat and his transom fan blows hot cheese and tomato sauce out onto the block. Poor tree, hungry for light, hungry for a tropical breeze, drops her faded droopy flowers onto every hubcap and into every storm drain. She can't wait to get away, but she's a little too desperate to show it. <laughs> it's such a good poem i really like that one yeah no i i encourage everyone i mean i this is this goes out for any any guest books but household gods is very good it was very enjoyable <laughs> oh thanks thank you so much um okay so this has been poetry spotlight a production of the ohio poetry association please follow the opa on twitter at ohio poetry and on facebook at facebook.com slash ohio poetry visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information and bonnie thank you so very much for talking with me thank you jeremy how wonderful